Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be uh, going through verses 15 through 20 this morning. We are continuing in our Urban Legend series, and uh, we're going to be asking the question this morning, when is God with us? When is God with us? Um, the, the verse that we're getting this urban legend from, again, comes from Matthew chapter 18. And it actually says this. We're just going to read it and then we'll get into it. It says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. So when is God with us? Is God with us today? Is he with me when I pray with Kai at night? Is he with you as you pray alone in your room? Is he with you at the, the dinner table? Is he with you as you're losing your mind on Highway 200, driving in the madness? Is God with you in those moments? And I think for most of us, we would say yes, an emphatic yes. We know that God is with us. We know that God is with us in all of these times. And so why have we said this passage in the context of what it's saying, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Because you, you hear that so many times. Well, you know, where two or three are gathered, he is with us. And that is true. But what does it mean if he's always with us? It would be like us walking outside this morning or this afternoon in this hot first day of August sun and saying, man, it is hot out here. And then someone else walking up and saying, well, you know, where two or three are gathered, it's really hot. I mean, yeah, it's hot in Florida. Yes, there are uh, factors that make that hot. But one of those factors is not contingent on how many people are with us. Where two or three are gathered in, in August or the end of July and the summers of Florida it doesn't really matter. It's going to be hot whether I'm by myself or not. And so it's the same way with this passage, kind of. It, God is always with us, so what is it actually saying? And so the first thing as we dive into this passage that we're going to see is that he is with you in the confrontation. He's with you in the confrontation. It says there in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him, his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so this, this passage falls in a section where Jesus is talking about temptation. And he's talking about the temptation of the world and how we rejoice over those who have gone astray but then have come back or found. He then goes into this verse, which is the beginning of the section of how to correctly deal with a believer who is involved with sin. So this is hard for us with Christians, uh, as Christians, for many reasons. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons, actually, that it's hard for us. One of those is, or the main reason sometimes, is that we just have a distorted view of sin. We've been deceived to think that sin is not as bad as it truly is. Um, Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, just right before this passage, it says this. So, so it's kind of building up and showing us, hey, sin is actually a big deal. And so that's kind of going to kind of be a theme throughout this passage. 
It says here in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so he, he's, pretty, uh, he, he's pretty over the top right here in, in this uh, analogy of what he's talking about because he wants to, to really hit home the point of, hey, it's better for you to even get rid of body parts than to fall into sin and to be thrown into the eternal punishment of hell. And so here's the thing. We have a distorted view of sin, but sometimes we actually uh, like confronting people in their sin, okay? Because we want to point out their sin, and we want to look a little bit holier than thou sometimes. Uh, and that's just as bad as, as seeing uh, you know, it's just as bad uh, to some degree as seeing sin as, as maybe not that big of a deal. Because what we're doing there is we're trying to say, hey, I'm better than you. Here's the sin that's in your life, which Jesus talked about uh, earlier in Matthew 7 as well. And so here's the thing. Sometimes we even uh, cloak talking about other people's sin uh, in the uh, the good old prayer request uh, category, you know, we need, really need to pray for this person because this is what's going on in their life. And we begin to, to talk about other people's sin and we begin to get those kind of things out there rather than confronting someone in their sin. And so uh, sometimes it's easy to confront, but sometimes it's difficult to, to confront someone in their sin. And so here Jesus tells us, first of all, that we need to address sin. It's something that we need to do. He says, if your brother sins against you, that is, that is one of the biggest things. And even though it says against you, many scholars believe that this is still a general statement of if, a, if someone has fallen into a sin of some type, you need to confront them. But either way, whether they have uh, sinned against you or whether it's a general sin where they are uh, sinning unrepentantly, and needs to be confronted. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in sin in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we are to address those who are in sin, whether it's against us or those who are just sinner, sinning in other ways. We need to address those who are in sin. So we address the sin. First of all, it says with that person. Go to them alone. So many times, like I said earlier, we want to bring up these sins and we want to talk about these sins and the sin of that person with other people. But it says here we need to first go to that person alone. And it seems like an easy task, but again, so many Christians struggle with this. Why do we struggle with confronting people? Because it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do to go to someone and say, hey, I've noticed you're in this sin. I, I see you're struggling with this. But this is what Scripture tells us, and I really want to walk alongside you and help you get out of this. It seems like something easy, but it's really a difficult thing to do. 
is to confront someone in sin. And, and when I say confront someone in sin, we're not talking about just, you know, any sin that somebody has that we're bringing down the hammer on them. No, this is specifically talking about a habitual pattern of unrepentant sin. We're not going after everybody for every little thing that they do because we're all going to sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all living in the flesh and there's things that are going to happen, but we're talking about unrepentant sin here. So let the Spirit guide you. And remember, the goal in all of this The goal in confronting someone is repentance. We hope for repentance. And hopefully you love that person enough to go to them first. That you're not going to go to your small group or life group. You're not going to go to, you know, just tell their sin to everybody else. No, you're going to go to them first. Hopefully you love them enough to do that. And hopefully you love them enough that you want to walk alongside that person to see them come out of that sin. So that they can grow closer to God. So that that their relationship with Christ can be restored. Again, repentance and restoration is always the goal. And Jesus says here, if you confront them, hopefully you have won your brother. Hopefully they've listened and they've understood and they've repented. And that is always the goal. And I think if we would take this step, this first step seriously... And actually go to brothers and sisters in Christ when, when, they are, when they're in sin. Or when they sinned against us. To go to them ourselves. Not bringing all kinds of other things into it. Not you know, uh, causing a bunch of drama. But just going to them. I think we would resolve so many of the issues in the church if we would just go to them alone. But here's the thing. God is with you in this confrontation. But again, what if that person doesn't listen? It says now you should go to another person or two and know that God is with you all. You see, he is with you in the collaboration. He is with you in the collaboration. It says in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, you need to take others with you take others the circle should still be small here we're not getting again we're not getting our life group involved we're not getting our uh you know church softball team involved no you take one or two others and preferably it says you need to take witnesses obviously if if someone knows that person and they've seen that person in sin those are the people that you want to bring along with you not just some random person that might know of them or know of the sin that they're involved in but bring along people that actually know them that actually love them that actually care for them because they will be more gracious they're going to be more humble in their approach to in confronting them and again this isn't an opportunity for you to get some people together and gang up on that person and tell them how horrible they are No, you come alongside them and you lovingly, in God's wisdom and in God's guidance, show them, hey, brother, hey, sister, this is is the sin that you're involved with. This is what Scripture says, and we want to walk alongside you and uh, help you get out of this uh, with God's power. Again, as always, repentance and restoration is always the goal here. However, if that doesn't happen, it says the next step is to 
take it to the church. And here's the thing. As you know, God is with the church. He is with you in the church. God is with us as his church. It says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I know this may come as a shock to you, but God, as we said, is with his church. And so up until this point, the church hasn't been involved and shouldn't be involved. You know, the pastors don't need to be involved in every bit of the confrontation here. You don't have to bring the pastors in. You don't have to bring deacons in. You don't have to bring the church in. No, again, you go to that person alone, and then if that doesn't work, you take a couple people with you who may know the situation. And then if that doesn't work, if they still don't listen, that's when you get the church involved. And not only that, we don't just take them to any random church around the corner. Obviously, you take them to the church that they've been involved in, the church where the person worships alongside us, the church where that person has prayed together with others, the church where that person has given tithes, and the church where that person believes in the, in the goals of the church, and they believe in the progress and the things that that church is doing. The, the church where that person has been serving. Maybe it's the church where they came to know Jesus Christ and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe it's the church where they went to Sunday school and VBS. Maybe it's the church where they were baptized. Whatever it is, you take them to the church that they've been involved in. You, you go to the leadership there and you bring it before the church. And believe it or not, because this seems like a harsh thing to do. It may even seem like an unloving thing to do. But this is actually how you demonstrate love. Uh, I once uh, heard a story about a young lady who went to uh, a fabric store. And she walked in and she went up to the owner and she said, uh, Do you have any noisy, rustly, loud fabric? And the... Uh, owner of the fabric store thought, wow, that's a, an odd request. But yes, uh, I think we do. And he went and he found uh, two bolts of this fabric, this white, loud fabric that she was looking for. And um, curiosity finally got to him. And he said, uh, if you don't mind me asking, why in the world are you looking for noisy fabric? Most people want quiet, soft fabric, but you're looking for noisy, loud fabric. Why is that? And she said, well, uh, I'm getting married soon, and uh, I'm going to make a wedding dress. And he thought, well, that's again, that's an odd thing uh, for you to request, loud fabric for your wedding day. And she said, well, you see, my fiancé is blind. And so I want loud fabric so as I come down the aisle and I approach the altar, he knows it's me and he won't be embarrassed. And so that's how she was going to demonstrate love that day. Is it didn't matter, you know, that she had the greatest, fanciest, quiet, soft dress. No, she wanted to show love in that way. And, and, and you see, 
That's how we demonstrate love sometimes. And sometimes the people around us don't understand it. Sometimes the world around us doesn't understand the way that we demonstrate love as believers. And this is one of those situations that it may not make sense to the world around us. And honestly, it may not make sense uh, to the rest of the church in the way that we're demonstrating love here. And this step, again, it may sound unloving or even embarrassing to bring this to the church, but it's one of the most loving things we can do. And I think the tone that Jesus is using here is a beautiful tone because I think what he's saying in this is that I have built this church, my body that loves each other so much that when something is going wrong, I want to send this whole army, this whole body of believers alongside you to carry you and to guide you and help you out of this. I think it's one of the most loving things we can do is come alongside them and to show them as a church that we love you enough that we don't want you to be a part of that sin any longer. We want you to restore that relationship with Jesus Christ. However, even with all of that, if that person in sin still does not repent, the church must demonstrate obedience to Christ. We must demonstrate obedience. You see, if the first part of verse 17 you know, may have been unsettling to you, the second part is probably going to be even more difficult. Because it says here, Jesus says, if, you, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat that person as if they are no longer a brother or sister in Christ. Treat that person as if they are no longer a part of the church body. And again, that sounds extreme, especially in this day of seeker-sensitive church and you're trying to get everybody involved and you hear society saying that church is all about love and God is love, and which is true. And you may be asking the question, I thought church was supposed to be welcoming. I thought church was supposed to be loving. And here's the thing. It's the most loving thing we can do to confront them. But what Jesus is saying here is that we have to protect the purity of our church as well. We can't just let unrepentant sin run rampant in our churches. Christ did not die for that. Jesus didn't go to the cross for that. He didn't shed His blood for His church so that we could just run rampant in sin. No, we're supposed to stand blameless and spotless to this world and show them the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can't do that if we let sin run rampant in our church. And so He says, Act like they are not even a part of your body anymore. And see, this whole process is difficult, but we must trust what Jesus says. We must be obedient to what he's laid out. We have to trust Jesus above our emotions. We have to trust Jesus above our desires. We must trust Jesus above our own intellect here. If we can trust Jesus to save us, then we have to trust Jesus to guide us in the midst of these difficult situations. And so even in these difficult moments, you have to know that He is always with you. He is always with you. And we have His authority. 
You see, we have his authority, and verse 18 tells us that. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so that's what verse 8 is telling us, is that we have his authority. He's saying that what we do in his name, in his authority, is a reflection of what he does in heaven. So in the context of this passage, if this person whom you have confronted is saying, you know what, I'm living in sin and I am unrepentant and I will no longer turn to Christ, then you with authority can say, you are living in sin and it's a sin that cannot be forgiven by us. You see, their sin is unforgiven not because we say so, but because that's what Jesus said and we have his authority to say those things. We're acting on Christ's authority, and we have his support. We have his support. In verse 19, it says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Though not the focal verse of today, this is another verse that could easily be taken out of context. Wait, you mean if we get two or three of us together and, and we want something to happen, God's going to grant that? Yeah, that's not what that's saying. If that were true, then every sports team, you know, Auburn and the Falcons and the Braves and all of the teams that I love dearly, they'd be winning championships every year because there's a lot of people getting together asking God for them to win these games. And, I, you know, I'm guilty of that as well. But that's not the context of the passage. What the context of the passage is, is saying is that when two or three are in biblical agreement about the discipline and the confrontation being taken, then we have the support of our Father in heaven. We have God's support in that. We have His support and we also have His presence. We have His presence. Now, we're going to read this verse that we read in the beginning in the context of all that we've been talking about, the confrontation and the church discipline. And so verse 20 says this, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So now reading this in the context of all of that and, and thinking about all of this, we can see that Jesus is not saying, you know what, I'll come hang out with you once you got two or three people. You know, I don't want it to be a waste of my time, so get a couple of others, then I'll come hang out. That's not what God is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying here. No, Jesus is saying in the context of confronting someone about their unrepentant sin and in the context of, uh, of the church having church discipline on that person, he's saying where two or three are gathered in agreement on these things in gentle, loving confrontation, Jesus and his presence, which is always with us, is going to be especially, especially real in the midst of all these difficult times of confrontation and church discipline. He is among us in the midst of all of that. And that's what it's talking about. It. He is with us always. But he's reminding us that in these impossible times of church discipline and confrontation, that he is there. This should give us great, great confidence. This should give us great comfort that he is always there. And I think that does give us comfort. 
Um, in February of 2020, uh, almost towards the end of that month, as rumors of the coronavirus were beginning to swirl and the, the thought of lockdowns and things happening, uh, I got a phone call from Anya uh, one day, and uh, she told me that she was taking Kai to the doctor because uh, he was having some pain in his leg uh, that, that had happened at the daycare. And that doctor told us as they got him there that it seemed that his femur had been broken and just shocked and floored. I didn't. I was so confused and didn't know what to do. And I began to obviously talk to God and uh, uh, on his behalf. But we went up to Shan's and we waited and waited and got some x-rays and waited and waited and tried to distract Kai and his pain. And, of course, they had given him a little bit of pain medicine, but they couldn't do much. And so... Uh, we were waiting for surgery, and some things happened, and the surgeon couldn't get to him that night, and so they sent us to a room to wait overnight, and we were just, I was in so much pain for my boy. He was in pain physically, and I was just emotionally a wreck for him because it was so difficult watching this, this you know, two-year-old boy lie there, not understanding what's going on and why he couldn't go home and why this pain wouldn't stop. And he was so exhausted that as he was laying there uh, waiting you know, for that surgery in the morning, which it eventually happened, he would fall asleep. And as he would fall asleep and relax, the doctors told us that his muscles were trying to contract in his leg to, to keep the, the, the bones in place and to try to, to protect the bones. And so as he would fall asleep, he would jump. Just like we do sometimes as we fall asleep, we jump. Well, he would jump. So every two to three minutes, he would fall asleep. He would jump, and there would be excruciating pain. And then he would relax a little bit as, as we stroked his head and as we held his hand and as we told him we love him, as we told him we, we, we wish we could take this away. As we were there, you know, every time he would wake up and in pain and he would call for mommy, he would call for daddy. He would make sure he wanted us. He wanted to know that we were there, that that our presence was there. You see, here's the thing in the middle of all that was going on in the, the constant cycle of pain and falling asleep and jumping and not understanding the one thing that brought him comfort was his mom and his dad. The one thing that brought him peace was his mom and his dad. And not just us. If we were, you know, back home and he was there, that wouldn't have brought him any comfort. The thought of us would not brought him comfort. But what brought him comfort was our presence. What allowed him to, to fall asleep was our presence. And in the same way, that's how God is. In the midst of horrible times and chaotic times and things that we're, we're unsure about. The one thing that we can have comfort, uh, comfort in. The one thing that can bring us peace. The one thing that can give us confidence to make it through so much is His presence. And knowing that He's here with us. But not just in those bad times. Obviously what I've noticed is that Kai, even in the good times, He wants us around. When we're sitting at the dinner table, you know, I, I can't walk away. He wants me to come back. When he's playing in his room, he wants me there. When he's doing good things in the mundane times, he always wants his daddy or mommy around. Because our presence is comforting to him. And again, it's the same with God. 
And so in the context of this passage, yes, God is reminding us that in the difficult task of confronting someone in, in their sin, He is there with us. In the difficult task of church discipline, He is there with us. But honestly, the way this verse is often used, where two or three are gathered, He's with us, it's still true. God is always with us. When we're alone praying, when we're laughing as a family, when we're, when we're laughing as friends, when we're having a great time together, when we're weeping over something tragic, God is with us. He's always with us. And His presence is what brings us comfort. His presence is what brings us hope. His presence is what gives us peace. So I ask the question that I ask in the beginning. When is God with us? And the answer is always. He is always with us. And that can give us comfort and peace today. Let's bow our heads and, and just reflect on this this morning. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what sin you may have. I don't know if there's somebody you need to confront in their sin. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you do. I don't know if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you do. You know if you have a relationship with God. You know if there's a void in your life. And I will say this today, that God, as a believer in Jesus Christ, He is always with you. His presence is there. He's there to comfort you. He's there to guide you. He's there to give you wisdom. He's there to give you peace. He's there to give you joy. He's there to show you your purpose. And so this morning, I just want you to know that God loves you. God cares for you. And He wants to be with you. He wants to be beside you. He wants to be there at your family dinners. He wants to be there when you're alone. He wants to be there again on 200 as you're driving down and there's just madness all around. He wants to be there with you. God wants a relationship with you. He created you for that relationship. And so today, I ask the question, is he with you. Because if he's not, then I pray that you'll fill out that connect card and that prayer card and that decision card. If you fill it out the cards in the in the chair backs, if you're watching online, I pray you click the links and you say, I've made a decision today. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to be I want to know more about following him. I want to know more about all of this. Because I want God with me. Today and always. So be bold today. And step out and say, I want to know more. I want to do it. I want that comfort. I want that peace. I want that presence. And he's the only one that can do it. You can seek for that in, in, in many different ways and in many different things. But he's the only one that can fulfill your life. Is He with you? He can be. Always.
I want to pray for you today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this guidance. And thank you for reminding us that you are with us. You're with us as we confront people. You're with us as the church. You're with us as we come together in small groups. You're always with us, God. And so, God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that, God. And I do pray that if there's someone here in the presence of these words who does not know you, God, I pray that today they turn their life to you and that they get to experience all that you are. God, you're so good. Do great things in the lives of those who seek after you. Do great things in the life of this church. And may you get the glory from all that goes on here and in our individual lives as we seek to please you. God, we love you. We thank you for your presence today. And I pray this in your name. Amen.